If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Hey, it's your host, Kamea, and you're listening to Green Dreamer, a community-powered podcast. To be honest, we need more listener donations to be able to keep this show alive because, as you can see, we no longer do product advertisements, and we really want to keep it this way because we don't want to sell you things you don't need, and more importantly, we knew we needed to shed the incentive of appealing to corporate sponsors so that we can maintain our very critical lenses and continue to question a lot of mainstream ideas and big green narratives. And if every listener chipped in just $2 a month, we would meet our fundraising goal in no time. So join us today to be a co-creator of Green Dreamer at greendreamer.com support or at patreon.com greendreamer. We sometimes forget that the knowledge systems that we use to conceptualize the world are not necessarily exactly the same thing as the world that we're conceptualizing. So we, we mistake the model for the thing that is being modeled. We mistake the map for the territory. We mistake the word for the thing. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Kate Sandilands, who is a professor of environmental arts and justice, a faculty of environmental and urban change at York University. Her research areas include queer and feminist post-humanities, critical plant studies, biocultural histories, eco-criticism, and public environmental engagement through literature and storytelling. She's written, edited, or co-edited four books and close to 100 essays and articles, which you can learn more about through her website, katesandilands.ca. She begins here by offering us an introduction to the concept of botanical colonialism, and also how we might use various species deemed invasive to better understand the power dynamics and biocultural histories that led to their takeover of diverse landscapes today. I'm fairly sure I did not invent the term botanical colonialism, and I apologize to any listener who might consider that they invented the term. I'm, I'm not aware of the term's origin. It just seems to be a really apt way of thinking about colonialism as a multi-species process. As many indigenous scholars have pointed out, 
the colonization of the Americas and also Australia and also South Africa and, and many other colonized settler colonial places in the world has involved settler colonists both taking away natural resources, plants, animals, fungi from the putative colony and, and taking, the, taking them back to Europe or Japan or China, depending on the, on the power in question. But the, the process of settlement has, has also involved settlers bringing stuff with them, both intentionally and unintentionally. So settlers brought with them to North America, for example, apples. They brought wheat. They brought other staple crops, but they, uh, they also brought ornamentals and they brought, they, they brought species of agricultural plants, ornamental plants, and also accidental plants, plants that, that might have arrived in packing material or seeds that arrived in ships' ballasts. Uh, so these, these I'll, I'll confine myself to plants, although though animals are, are clearly also involved. These plants were part of the way in which uh, settler colonists created landscapes in the Americas, in North America, that were conducive to the kinds of settlement that the colonists wanted to have. So certain kinds of certain kinds of garden plants, certain kinds of aesthetics that were reminiscent of home. I'm thinking particularly about uh, an essay that I wrote relatively that, that was just published relatively recently on Scotch broom, which is uh, I know that that a lot of people up and down the, the west coast of North America will consider Scotch broom to be a bit of a scourge. It's considered one of the top 10 invasive plants in the Cascadia bioregion. And Scotch broom was brought to, to North America as an ornamental. For listeners who don't, who aren't familiar with it, it's a, a lovely, it's a lovely bright yellow color, and it is very, re- it's reminiscent of the of the Scottish Highlands. There's there's also gorse, which is also a non-native species, but gorse doesn't behave quite as invasively as Scotch broom. And Scotch broom found it, it was useful as a ground stabilizer. So it was not just planted as, a, as an attractive ornamental that, that was romantically connected to Scott settlers. It was also planted as a, as a ground stabilizer in and around things like hydro roads and hydro corridors and places that were damaged by uh, various kinds of extractive industry, logging and mining particularly. So the idea of botanical colonialism is premised on the fact that colonization by humans would not have been possible without the plants that they brought with them. Certainly other scholars have spoken very powerfully about the ways in which viruses and bacteria were agents of colonialism, you know, in pursuing their own, their own viral interests and bacterial interests. They were a key part of the colonization of the Americas through the dissemination of horrifically fatal diseases that decimated the indigenous human populations. Plants perhaps didn't participate quite so dramatically and horrendously, but plants have very definitely helped to solidify colonial infrastructures, spread colonial property relations and aesthetics, transform the landscape away from certain uh, indigenous forms of, of cultivation towards settler forms of cultivation. 
and also transformed the diet and, and I would argue the microbiome of indigenous people. So, so plants are plants are agents of colonialism as they pursue their own, they pursue their own species ends. Yeah, I think this framing of botanical colonialism in and of itself speaks to how much more to invasive plants there is beyond just the decontextualized ecological aspect, because it forces us to consider the relationship between these invasive plants and deeper colonial histories and infrastructures. So on this note, what do you find really important to highlight about this relationship? And critically, what are the limitations of what's called plant purification, or maybe simply killing off invasive plants as a pathway towards healing our communities and lands and the planet? There's a fair bit of attention paid to the preservation of native plants and and also to the eradication of so-called invasive plants. Invasive plant eradication is a multi-billion dollar industry, the the largest proportion of which goes into the pockets of of companies like Bayer and, and, and Monsanto. Roundup is actually one of the most popularly used chemicals to get rid of so-called uh, a variety of, of, of different species of so-called invasive plants. Dog strangling vine, garlic, mustard, Norway maple, most likely scotch broom as well, although I think not, not as commonly. So just getting rid of invasive plants, so-called invasive plants, without thinking about the relationships that brought those plants to North America is like treating the symptom and not the cause. The problem, as Indigenous authors such as Robin Robin Kimmerer have, have pointed out very articulately, the problem is not just there are plants out of place, or perhaps plants that, that uh, people have not figured out good relationships with, as some Indigenous thinkers would insist on pointing out. The problem is the relationships that brought the, the plants to North America. So the problem, as, as Nick Rio and Laura Ogden have, have argued, based on their research with Anishinaabe elders, is not so much any given invasive plant, it's the invasive land ethic which includes the, the widespread chemical uh, use of chemicals to eradicate invasive plants. So the, the problem is the invasive land ethic that comes along with settler colonialism rather than the presence or absence of any particular invasive plant. So I am, I am not an Indigenous person. I am of Scottish, English, and Welsh heritage, and my parents came to uh, the west coast of Canada in the 1950s. So uh, Scotch broom preceded me. I am a relatively new import, and I am also trying to figure out my place in a landscape, in a, in a colonized landscape. How can I, with the, the kind of work that I do and the kind of kinships that I make with plants, the, the plants and animals around me, how can I not participate in uh, an invasive land ethic, and also not imagine that my presence in the land is somehow innocent. So it's not like I can just get rid of the native plants and then I'm okay. I actually need to think ethically and politically about the network of relationships that I have with the plants and animals and indigenous peoples around me. Mm. 
There's something I want to bring to the forefront based on what we've just talked about so far, which is this idea of biocultural histories, because the scientific fields of biology or ecology, for example, tend to take on a more reductive and specific lens, often using certain measurable numbers and data in order to help us understand a landscape or specific species, for example, and then what might need to be done in order to see improvements in the figures that indicate the health of said species or ecosystems. But that can leave out the context of the power dynamics and shift in social relations or even linguistic and cultural transformations that we might learn about more so in general and cultural history. So what do you see as the significance of not separating social and cultural history from the biological and ecological lens? And instead, having this more holistic and integrated look at biocultural histories altogether. That is a very, very complicated answer, and I'm not sure I can do justice to it in a way that would be manageable for the for the podcast. But in my view of the world, you can't separate. I'm not sure if one ever could, but one certainly cannot now separate social from biological history. The, the two have, have shaped each other for millennia. And there, I think there, there is a little bit of an idea that nature, that, that nature with a capital N, and I'm, I'm doing air quotes, that the best thing that humans can do for nature is leave it alone. And that's a bit of a hangover from the idea of, of wilderness preservation that inaugurated a lot of environmental uh, environmental thought and activism in the in the 19th and 20th and still goes on in the 21st centuries. In fact, as a lot of indigenous scholars have have shown with with great patience and great eloquence, humans and plants have been carrying on reciprocal respectful relations for millennia. The problem is not that there are relations between biological and social history. The problem is that the the particular social histories are completely out of whack. I I blame settler colonialism. I, I also have to name capitalism. People treat plants and indeed all of nature as a site for profit and accumulation rather than as a place in which to enact respectful reciprocal relations. I think, and, and this sort of brings me brings me full circle back to some of the the early work that I did in the, in the, in the '90s about uh, ecofeminism, which does not necessarily drawing on indigenous traditions, but in some cases drawing on indigenous traditions globally, argues for relations of of mutual care, respect, mutuality an acknowledgement of the, of the fundamental entanglement of human lives with uh, more than human lives and vice versa. So I do not want to, to slag the natural sciences. Some of my best friends are ecologists and they do amazing, they do amazing work in uh, both field and laboratory settings. I have an enormous respect for ecological scientists, but I think in order to, in order to really understand how to live well in the natural environment. We need to remember that we are part of nature and not separate from it, and that we can enact respectful, mutual, 
enriching relationships with other species. We are not only destroyers and eaters, although actually eating is a very natural thing to do. We, we are not only destroyers and exploiters. That is part of very particular cultural and social formations and not inherent to human relations with the more than human world. Yeah, it's certainly important for us to learn from people who specialize in particular fields so we can have a true depth of understanding and at the same time to take a step back to look at things in more holistic ways as well. So there's a lot to learn from just trying to look at things in a more multidisciplinary and holistic way and to connect the dots between different fields of study as well. And a core focus of your work has been this theme of cultivating plurality and assuming that this could be the first time many of our listeners are hearing about this, or at least how it's framed. What does cultivating plurality mean to you? And how could this potentially shift the ways that we relate to the world and how we approach the work of regenerating the health of our communities and the earth? I, I find a lot of meaning and depth in both the metaphor and the practice of cultivation. I, I often, I think in the garden, I th and I think through the garden. I, al I also think people who who spend a lot of time tending and attending and cultivating plants, particularly, have a have a, a rich understanding of of that kind of mutuality that that I was just speaking about. You don't grow a plant by forcing it. Well, you you don't grow a, a successful garden by just forcing it to do what you want it to do. What that ends up doing is depleting the soil. It ends up sort of stress, stressing out the plants. The Green Revolution was not a very good idea. And that a return to thinking about cultivating and tending as uh, creating and attending to relations of, of co-flourishing or mutual becoming that is actually a much more promising way of thinking about how we can be among plants and how we can be among plants and animals. Uh, that involves paying attention to what the, the other species in the conversation might be interested in. What are the needs of, of these peas? What are the needs of these radishes? Even though the radishes are, are, are going to be eaten by me, again, you know, sort of eating is part of, of living in the world. What do these radishes need from me and how do I return to the, to, to the radish, to the species? How do I return respect in a way that acknowledges the ongoing needs of the other species involved in the question? So this, this is sort of the, the opposite of, of extraction, the opposite of extractivism. How do I attend generously to the needs of the other in this situation? The idea of plurality suggests that, well, it, it demands that we live in the world acknowledging that we are, we're not the pinnacle of life, we are, we are not the only species that matters, and that the other species around, uh, that we are surrounded by also have worlds and needs and are agents. They have desires, they have, they have things that they want and need and require. And it is by attending to these plural worlds that, that we can think about actually having a, a less exploitive way of, of being in the world. 
again, I want to, to emphasize the fact that many of these ideas around reciprocity and obligation are absolutely central to Indigenous philosophies and Indigenous worldviews. And I, I, I am certainly very influenced by, by thinkers such as, as Kimmerer. But there are paths to those kinds of relationships in Euro-Western traditions as well. Colonialism is not the only story. Capitalism and colonialism are not the only story uh, in Euro-Western cultures. There are histories of, of mutuality. There are histories of respectful relationships. And it's important for folks who, who have Euro-Western backgrounds to, to look to those traditions and not just the destructive, although we have to acknowledge the destructive legacies of capitalism and colonialism. They're not that, they, there are the seeds of other possibilities within our own stories as well. And to further humble our role and place as humans, I've been thinking a lot about both the value and the limitations of language, specifically that we use language often to try to conceptualize and frame and better understand this complex and dynamic world. But I think oftentimes we end up giving too much weight to that language and seeing our concepts and social constructs as more rigid and real than the complex and dynamic reality that those words and categories and framings were created based on. And that sense of human supremacy and control can get us in trouble and prevent us from seeing the complex world of pluralities for what it is. So as we bring in this idea of queer ecology, how does it highlight the costs of using rigid social constructs in order to understand the world and guide our solutions and actions? And how does this lens offer alternate stories that help us to live with plurality in the more than human world? We sometimes forget that the knowledge systems that we use to conceptualize the world are not necessarily exactly the same thing as the world that we're conceptualizing. So we, we mistake the model for the thing that is being modeled. We mistake the map for the territory. We mistake the word for the thing. So I, th I think that that remembering, you, you mentioned humility, appro approaching the, the material world with a sense of humility means that we, we need to be oriented to listening as much as speaking and to intuiting and divining as much as ordering and controlling, uh, or, or perhaps, even, perhaps more than ordering and controlling. I'm not sure if I'd made this connection before, but there's a, there's a marvelous Canadian poet named Don Mackay, and he wrote a, a terrific book uh, some years ago called Vis-a-vis, -vis Field Notes on Poetry and Wilderness. And he writes that the task of the nature poet is to, to use language in a way that brings to attention the limitations of language. So to, mm. to write about the natural world with the need to listen to the natural world folded into the language itself. That might be a bit abstract as an illustration, but it's what, uh, what you just made me think of. The, the idea of, of queer ecology comes both from the origins that I, that I mentioned in thinking about the intersections between institutions and discourses and practices around sexuality and, and nature. So the, the intersections between LGBTQ and ecological politics. And also in the more interrogative possibilities that, that inhere in, in the idea of, of queering. 
in the, in that sense, the idea of queer means to to make strange, to to estrange, to go crosswise or against the grain or or sideways. And I think one of the things that that queer ecology can do is ask us to question and estrange the the ways that we think we know about the more than human world to call them into question and to imagine what the world would look like if we viewed it otherwise if if we took certain very solid ideas about how the natural world works and look at them sideways to see how they might be viewed otherwise and whether in that otherwise view, there is something of value. I'm always especially moved by conversations that inspire me to think about things in a new light. And yeah, just always curious to connect topics that I had not thought of as being related before. And on this note, I was especially drawn to this other way of looking at queer ecology, which is how people's personal experiences and engagements with gender and sexuality might influence our relationships with and perspectives on the more than human world. Mm -hmm. And so it does lead me to ponder about, in an open and non-judgmental way, the relationship between cultures that hold more heteronormative views and how rigidly they might hold the social constructs of the binaries of human and nature, culture and ecology, and so forth. What do you feel most stirred by to share in this moment as we think openly about how our experiences with gender and sexuality connect to how we might relate to the more than human world? I'm always in favor of, of, of doing away with binary, uh, of binary thinking. Mm-hmm. I know that there are some very, there, there are some very rich intellectual and philosophical traditions that, that think generatively with ideas of dualism, but I am, I am very drawn to modes of thinking that ask us to think about spectrums. So uh, thinking, thinking about spectrums and pluralities. So if we, if we think about gender as something other than a binary, if we think about gender as a, as a plurality of possibilities, a plurality of different forms of, of enactment, of gendered and uh, and sexed possibilities of being, I think that at least I hope that that experience of possibility, of fluidity, of uh, not being constrained by a, a rigid code that that divides the world into categories of either this one thing or this other thing, that will also help us think about uh, the. Um, inutility of maintaining a clear distinction between humans and uh, the rest essentially the rest of the the rest of the living world otherwise known as human exceptionalism i think that that human exceptionalism is being eroded on all kinds of fronts sort of just thinking about the number of species uh, of, of animals that are clearly recognized as, as, as bearing language, as being capable of social learning, as being able to, to, to wield their own meaning systems and concepts of the world. So, so those clear lines between humans and primates, humans and dolphins, humans and, and bears, humans and dogs, uh, humans and cats, the rigidity of the line between human and everything else, that dualism is crumbling. The rigidity of the line between male and female is, is, is crumbling. 
there have always been a spectrum of, of genders. And, and some cultures have actually recognized that. Just that the, the, you know, sort of the, the traditions in which, uh, in which I have been born and raised most certainly have not. And in that context, the binaries are, the, the binaries are, are, are falling down all over the place. And in the process, I hope that we are able to, to recognize different forms of, of relationship, different forms of, of entanglement, different forms of connection, different forms of kinship, different forms of uh, shared experience and mutuality, rather than imagine the other side as uh, opaque and opposite to our own, to our own experience. So, so if, because not if, because gender is a spectrum, it is no longer useful to think about what is it, men are from Mars, women are from Venus, and the idea that there are, there are these two completely different registers of experience. It doesn't mean that everything is suddenly the same. It just means that the categories through which those experiences are, are, are lived uh, and performed and coded turn out to be a great deal more complex. And I think so do interest uh, that the same also holds true for interspecies relations. My cat, for example, if the, if the cat that I, I, I live with is, is not other, if she is just different, then there are possibilities for shared connection and, and not just misunderstanding and not just domination. Mm. And this really goes back to this idea of humbling our relationship with language. And as you said, not mistaking the word for the real thing it was created off of, or not mistaking the concept for what that was based on. And this will be inching into new territory for this show. And I do hope for there to be no bounds to where our guests might take us. So I want to bring this in. You found Greta Gard's article toward a queer ecofeminism to be worthy of noting, specifically as she looks at how Western culture's devaluation of the erotic parallels its devaluation of women and nature, and also Gard's emphasis that erotophobia is a key link between heterosexism and ecological degradation. So beyond that more individualized lens of how our own personal engagements with gender and sexuality might relate to how we look at the more-than-human world, how would you expand upon this broader cultural impact of devaluing the erotic? It might feel abstract to connect that to ecological degradation, but I'd be curious to hear you connect these dots. There are a number of different ways of thinking about it, and, and one that might be useful would be to remember that the erotic is not just sex. And Audre Lorde uh, reminds us of that, the, the, the brilliant lesbian poet Audre Lorde, in her utterly groundbreaking essay, uh, The Uses of the Erotic. She's speaking about the erotic as the power of the, sen- the, the sensuous, the power of the sensual, the power of the, of the body, particularly. That's one of those dualisms that really persists is mind-body. And that I think that that's also partly what Greta is getting at when she talks about erotophobia. And the mind-body dualism is actually one of the one of the, the ways in which human exceptionalism has been established for, for millennia, with the understanding that humans are the only are the only living beings who are in possession of mind and everything else, uh, everybody else only has bodies. That, that's one way that, that the, the ill treatment of all other species on the planet has been justified. 
because they, they don't have minds. They're not wor- worthy of moral attention. They're not sentient. They're not, they don't think, they don't have language. They don't ha- know how to, they don't wield concepts. So even as those, the boundaries around the human, that human exceptionalism is being, is being crumbled by the revelation that, that orcas have very sophisticated social lives and very complex languages. At the same time, thinking with someone like Audre Lorde about the, the uses of the erotic would say that we also need to think about how we proceed in the world through our bodies and on a bodily level. And, you know, I, 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 I don't mean... Um, hedonism. Um, in fact, I definitely don't mean hedonism. We can live the erotic in very thoughtful ways, which is what which is what Lord is arguing for. But what happens if we really deeply understand ourselves as embodied beings? What kinds of, of, of ecological understanding emerge from senses other than sight, processes other than conceptualization? the development of relationships based on uh, based on on touch and listening rather than the ocular uh, ocular centrism of a lot of western cultures so how do we uh, how do we think about the erotic as a force of connection rather than a force of of uh, of domination and exploitation there's so much in what you just shared i'm looking forward to re-listening to this conversation and seeing how it shifts me in a more embodied way. And regular listeners of this show will probably recognize this theme having surfaced repeatedly in our conversations from this past year. But in thinking about our paths towards healing our communities and relationships with the earth, what may feel to be the easiest and most within reach next step could be to further inclusivity politics of trying to expand the same rights within our existing political and legal frameworks and so forth to everyone, and including more and more people and more than human beings in that idea of everyone. But when you talk about queer ecology, you invite us to distinguish queerness as actually challenging dominant institutions and practices rather than striving for rights-based equality. So what has been your thought process on this and what do you see as the limitations of inclusion and the expansion of rights? I'm not completely opposed. I mean, I think that pursuing rights is a strategy, provided that we understand that the beings that we are giving rights to force us to understand what the what the concept of rights mean so so inclusion is fine as long as we like for example the idea of the rights of nature or uh the idea that uh, a river as is now the case in in uh in several parts of the world that a river or an ecosystem has rights that estranges that queers what we understand to be a right mm-hmm. so i i'm i'm not you know, I, I think I think that pursuing rights for, for for non-human beings is actually partly because it, it it causes us to think about what a right actually is 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 not all is not necessarily a bad idea, mm-hmm. but it is definitely incomplete. I think it's important to to think, uh, and you know, again, I I, I go back to, to that very early ecofeminist training that uh, relationships are are just as important as rights. And that obligations and mutualities end up being end end up in many respects being just as important as uh, rights and entitlements. 
the the question to live in the world not with the sense of being a rights bearing individual, but in the sense of asking what my obligations are to the world. They're very different. They're they're very different orientations. Rights based discourses can be limiting and individualistic and exclusive. I have rights. You don't have rights. Living in the world with a sense of uh, with a sense of, of reciprocity or mutuality or obligation asks not what I can get from you, but what I can do to what what I can do to help, what I can do to care for you, what I can do to understand what your needs are. Mm. So I, I think the, the the problem is not rights per se; it's the the orientation to individualism and entitlement that they tend to lead to. That's the problem. Therefore, why not try something else? Why not think about caring, as many ecofeminists have argued? Why not think about obligation and reciprocity, as many Indigenous scholars have argued? And finally, to take this forward in terms of some guiding words for our path and the key takeaways from here, how would you invite our listeners to think about queer as a verb and queering as an exercise in ecological imagination? So what would you like for us to keep sitting with and pondering after this conversation to help us envision and practice more life-affirming ways of being with this world? At a very basic level, it's important to recognize that heterosexuality is, un- is kind of unusual in the world, that reproductive heterosexuality in which that, that, that it's actually it's, it's a very it's a very specific form of, of reproduction. It's a very specific kind of kinship and family relationship that that gets set up. So reproductive heterosexuality is is a tiny, tiny, tiny proportion of all of the sexualities in the world. So if we get off our high, I must admit, I'm particularly thinking of the uh, of the religious right. If if they get off their high horse uh, and stop imagining that other forms of sexuality are unnatural, that's a good place to start with a little bit a little bit of sexual humility. I think more broadly, though, uh, so, so I think I think I think it's really important for, uh, for for queer ecology to remember that ideas of sex and nature are entwined, and that it's actually important to estrange them, to queer them, to look at them, to look at them otherwise, and see what kind of work those discourses do to oppress sexual minorities and also to uh, do damage to the way we understand and live in the natural world. More broadly, the idea of, of estrangement, of looking at the world sideways, of, of, of understanding our conceptual, uh, of understanding the, the wonders of our, of our conceptual world with humility, that's another really important step to take. Uh, what, what happens if we always remember that we could be wrong? What happens if we always remember that looking at the looking at the world sideways to the to the way that we are accustomed to thinking about it might actually give us a uh, a different spectrum of concepts, a different spectrum of possibilities, a different uh, a different spectrum of uh, of relationships. I guess I, I need to. I, I'm not sure that it's that it's specifically queer, but I think it's really important. You know, sort of going back to that earlier conversation about biocultural histories. It's really, really important to think about to always think about the power, the human power relations 
in which relationships and institutions of the natural world are organized. So to to remember to think about racism, which is not a word that I've, I could, I'm, I'm very sorry, not the, not a word that I brought into the conversation so far. To think about the ways in which our relations to the natural world are racialized, as well as gendered, as well as organized by relations of extractive settler colonialism. So, so to queer is to uh, to challenge and upend. I, I think is, is crucially related to those other uh, to, to challenging and upending those those very destructive sets of social relationships. You're on my mind, and the rain pours down, and I'm running blind. The dark she sings. It makes me smile Cause you're still here now Still giving me things And I can hear what you're saying Making me laugh through my tears when I'm failing Oh, the heart beats when you go And the blood What has been an impactful book that you've read or publication that you follow? One book that I that I've read numerous times and that I that I'm that I'm currently grappling with in my work is a novel called The Vegetarian by Han Kong. She's a South Korean author. The story is about a, a woman, Young Hye, who uh, wants to become a tree. And I think that that book really does an absolutely stunning job of both critiquing human human exceptionalism and and the violences of of patriarchal capitalism, and also imagining the possibilities of of having these these queer lateral connections with other than human beings. What is a motto, mantra, or practice you engage with to stay grounded? Pay attention. And what is your biggest source of inspiration at the moment? I get a lot of inspiration while walking. That's it's uh, uh, related to the to the mantra of pay attention, to slow down and uh, walk through the landscape, pay and, and pay attention to to the seasons as they're changing, to 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 what is doing well, to what is what might not be doing too well, paying attention to the. Uh, the other beings around me as I move slowly and as my, uh, and particularly to come into the, the bodily experience of walking. So uh, walking is not just uh, taking my brain out uh, for travels. It's, it's, it's also moving through the landscape in a, in a particular embodied way that I think invites, uh, invites active attention and slowness. Mm. Well, Green Dreamer, we are coming to a close here, but you can learn more about Kate and where to find her work online in our show notes at greendreamer.com. And for now, Kate, thank you so much for so generously and openly sharing your critical learnings and insights with us here. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? I'm really not sure I do have a a, a summary. Uh, I think think, uh, it took all my energy to get to pay attention. This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. 
And to be honest, we cannot keep the show going without more direct support. So if you value independent media and critical conversations like this, you can help to sustain and co-create the future of this show with a donation of any amount at greendreamer.com slash support or at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Without a media network behind us, we also rely entirely on human-to-human word-of-mouth sharing so that our extensive library of episodes can inspire and reach more people. So if you get the chance to share your favorite episodes with loved ones or to write us a five-star review in the podcast app, this all helps us out so, so much as well. Green Dreamer is a proud partner of Kaliapea Foundation, which shares our vision and understanding that ecological, cultural, and spiritual renewal are interdependent. The song featured in this episode is Come the Rain by Maggie Clifford. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. Our transcript editor is Janice Cantieri. And I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Take care, and I will catch you soon in the next episode.